this morning I'm actually really excited because this is a message that when I research what I preach about um, and I learn heaps that I didn't know, it gets me so amped about it. And so this is one of those messages. And every time I go through, you'll probably be able to notice it's still blowing my mind. Um, now, I don't know about you, but for me, when I read back on the Old Testament, right, there are so many moments where I go, oh, Man, I just wish, I wish that God would work miracles like he did then, the way that, you know, today, where we can see them. Uh, some of my favorite miracles of all time that God works um, are these ones here. So the Israelites escape from slavery in Egypt, right? Big problem. But God goes ahead of them and solves the problem every time. Uh, they come to the Red Sea and they cannot cross it in time. No worries. Uh, he literally parts the Red Sea all night long. I don't think about that part. He parts it all night long, holds the waters back uh, for thousands upon thousands to then walk across this dry ground. Dry ground. Parted sea, dry ground, miracle, blows my mind. Um, you may ask then, how would the people know where to go, right? How would they know if they're going in the right direction, if the Israelites are then traveling in the desert? Well, no worries. God thought of that one. Uh, he appeared before them as a pillar of cloud during the day to lead them, and then a pillar of fire at night to then guide them in the darkness. So they were able to travel whenever they wanted, wherever. And the presence of the Lord was with them, and He guided them every step of the way. Blows my mind. But how would they be able to pack enough food for 40 years, right? They didn't know that it was going to be 40 years, plot twist. Uh, how would they... How would they be able to pack enough food for the journey? No worries. God thought of that one too. He dropped manna from heaven, uh, little honey-like crackers, honey-tasting crackers, the Bible says. New thing that I learned too. Uh, and so he provides for them. He drops manna from heaven every single day for 40 years to sustain his people. That blows my mind. What hurts my brain, however, uh, is the fact that the Israelites still disobeyed God so blatantly, even though his presence was tangible and literally with them wherever they went. They saw his presence. They saw the fact that he was with them and that he was God and he was doing all of these miracles. And they still so blatantly disobeyed him. That blows my mind. Don't even get me started on Jesus, right? When Jesus shows up on the scene, there are so many miracles that he um, ends up doing that I'm like, oh, come on. I read it in the Bible and I'm like, Jesus, if you were here today, right, it would just shut all of my friends up. They would be able to look at you and be like, well, of course, he is who he says he is. These are my top five favorites. I had to nail them down here. Uh, where children were so looked down upon and kind of shoved aside, Jesus recognized their faith and said, no, let them come to me, right? He loved people so radically. And these are some ways that it's shown. Where the unclean were cast to the outskirts of society and they had to live outside of the walls of some cities, Jesus goes and he lays hands on lepers to then see them healed. Where women were commonly stoned for their promiscuous lifestyles, Jesus was their biggest defender. Where society was all about status, Jesus had called and discipled a bunch of total misfits. 
And the last one here, when legions of demons would drive people out of cities and into seclusion, Jesus spoke with authority and cast the demons out. It hurts my brain to then watch the Jews, right? His people, the religious leaders of his day, then actually question every single one of his motives. They were the ones that had pinned him down for doing all of these things and claimed that he was demonically possessed. How? I often have conversations with young people that I teach or teenagers at youth. Um, I've only just stopped doing youth ministry. And so did that for 10 years, had lots of these conversations where we thought the same way. You know, man, if Jesus just lived today, it would answer so many of our questions. If Jesus were just here, he would be able to show me or show my friend or show my parents that he is real and it would get rid of so many questions. But actually, when I was big, uh, digging a little bit deeper into this scripture, uh, as I was writing this message, I was really challenged by Jesus's perspective on this. We can see uh, from his dialogue with the disciples in John 16 uh, that he would probably beg to differ. He says this, and it'll come up on the screen and it should be in your notes if you've got the Elam app. Jesus says this to his disciples, but very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Hmm. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It is for your good. Even though I, I selfishly want him to be here, he goes, no, no. Actually, when he was here, he goes, no, I need to leave. And it's for your good that I go. I can just imagine his disciples sitting there and being like, um... Uh, Where's the punchline? Like what? Funny joke, Jesus, but what are you actually talking about? They were so confused by what he was saying because they didn't know the plans. They don't have the Bible like we have it to look back in hindsight. They were so confused and they were sitting there saying, uh, n n I don't get it. And they asked him that question multiple times. What do you mean? What do you mean? Um, who is this father that you are going to? You see, in this passage, Jesus is actually beginning to prepare the disciples for his inevitable death. But because they rely so heavily on Jesus being among them, they were so thrown off by the thought of him one day not being present. In a nutshell, this is what Jesus was saying. We may not have him physically present, but it is better for us that we are filled with his presence. I'll say that one more time. We may not have him physically present, but it is better for us that we are filled with his presence. You may have heard of the analogy of the little girl with the pearl necklace. Has anybody heard of that analogy before? Oh, fantastic one. Oh, yes, I see that hand, Adam Frost. Okay, <laughs> let me share it with you. Uh, it's a little bit of a story, so I'll read it to you. It goes a little something like this. Jenny... A five-year-old little girl was at the dollar store with her mother one day and spotted a pink cardboard box with a beautiful Barbie pearl necklace. I can tell you this is an old story because those are like $30, not at the dollar store anymore. She begged and pleaded with her mum uh, to buy this necklace. And even though it would cost her all the pennies in her piggy bank and then some extra chores, she didn't hesitate to say yes to pay the price to buy it. Jenny had a very loving father. Every night, he would read her a bedtime story and give her a kiss goodnight. He saw how much she loved her new pearl necklace, so much that she even wore it to bed every night. One night after the bedtime story, he asked her, Jenny, 
Do you love me? Why, of course I love you, Dad, she replied. Then give me your pearls. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't do that. <laughs> uh, you'll have to go, uh, you, could, you could maybe take one of my softwares instead. You can take Hugo. Um, and then Dad just says, that's okay, honey. Good night. I love you. And with a kiss on the forehead, he tucked her in to go to sleep. Her father asked the same question every night after story time. You might see where I'm going with this. He asked the same question every night after story time until Jenny eventually ran out of substitutes to then offer her dad. One night as he sat down to read to her, he noticed something was a little bit different. With tears in her eyes streaming down her rosy cheeks and with a quiver in her lip, she eventually said, here you go, dad. It's for you. And she handed over her precious pearl necklace. With tears welling up in his own eyes, her dad took the pearls, knowing just how much they meant to Jenny. And, and as she slowly released her grip, he reached into his jacket pocket and pulled out a blue velvet case holding a delicate, genuine pearl necklace with her name engraved on the chain. He had it all along, but he needed to wait for her to give up her most prized possession first before he could replace it with the real deal. I always circle back to this analogy when I think about Jesus explaining to his disciples about how the Holy Spirit is replacing him, right? Uh, the disciples were convinced that Jesus was the real deal. They were convinced that Jesus was this pearl necklace that they brought from the dollar store uh, and that he was, they were so fixated on what they had in front of them that they didn't even register that there could have been a better option unaware that the father already had the real deal ready and waiting to send out, uh, they refused to accept the fact that anything could possibly replace, let alone be better than the Messiah in the flesh. When Jesus says, I will send you the advocate, he is referring here to the Holy Spirit, the third and final person of the Trinity. He's also known as the helper, the counselor, uh, the comforter, and he is not bound by a physical body. So he does away with any of these restrictions whatsoever. Jesus is very clear about the fact that it is for your good that I am going away. See, I'm not a very emotional person. I'm quite a, like, a practical thinker, right? Uh, and so when it comes to this verse, I think about it actually, Jesus is so right. Uh, even if we had him present on earth today, there would actually be so many more complications that came with the fact that he would be on earth. Uh, for example, all of the flights for sure would be booked to go to Israel wherever he was. If he'd moved, then people would move. And so all of the flights would be booked. That would be a pain. Um, the good old days when we could fly, hey. Um, there were multiple things. People would debate every, uh, every scandalous or offensive claim that he made. Right, And there were many of them, and he would keep making them for sure. He would be on the headlines of every gossip magazine for all of those claims and, of course, be portrayed wrong. And let's not forget the fact that Jesus was actually homeless uh, for all of his ministry when he was uh, ministering to the people. All of that would, of course, only apply if Jesus hadn't been assassinated at that point, which we know that he probably would have because he had lots of haters. Uh, Jesus really wasn't kidding when he said that it was for our good that he goes and the helper comes. 
We may not have him physically present, but we are actually, it is better for us that we are filled with his presence. Let's zoom out a little bit and take a look at this timeline, um, at the timeline of this all. I remember getting so frustrated by the Israelites' disobedience. It's actually quite funny when I was flicking through uh, my old Bible that I read uh, cover to cover (laughs) through my teenage years, and um, it was hilarious. I was looking back at these notes, and I was so frustrated every time the Israelites did something wrong. Of course, this was before I realized that we are the Israelites, right? Uh, And so... (laughs) I was going through and literally reading my like little side notes and it's like footnote, why are they so useless? Uh, Hashtag not surprised um, and all of these different things. And so I was reading through, I was like, wow, I was really like taking my emotions out of my Bible. Um, But it was, it was great. Um, But thank God that is for my eyes only because that was an embarrassing trip down memory lane. Anyways, over 500 years before Jesus was even on the scene, uh, we see the prophet Ezekiel, and he prophesies uh, and makes sense of the bigger picture of what's actually taking place here. He is right in the midst of this roller coaster ride of disobedience that the Israelites keep uh, circling back to. And the Spirit of the Lord explains to Ezekiel uh, that the Israelites are in this vicious cycle and they're so far off track that they are in dire need of divine intervention from God. An author named Christopher Wright puts it this way. He says this, Ezekiel was ministering to a people who were broken and battered in every conceivable way. That's the situation that the Israelites were in. Listen to this. There were political, economic, agricultural, social, judicial, religious, personal, relational, and spiritual dimensions to their sin and suffering. It was a very much a multifaceted situation, and God intended to tackle every single aspect that they faced, that they needed. Now, God was by no means sugarcoating his anger towards the Israelites in the process of redeeming them. I found this quite hilarious. Um, And so, in fact, we read in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22, and it'll show up on the screen behind me. God saying, now then, give the Israelites the message that I, the sovereign Lord, have for them. What I am going to do is not for the sake of you, Israelites, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have disgraced in every country that you have gone. A few chapters prior, God actually outlines to the prophet Ezekiel exactly what he was angry at the people for. They had one job. They had to keep his commandments, right? And they did everything but that job. Uh, So Ezekiel spoke on God's behalf and he clarified to the people, this would have been a hard prophecy to deliver. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. And nor have you sought the lost, but with force and severity, you have dominated them. What comes next is the biggest revelation in this passage. God makes it very clear that the reason the Israelites, and this blows my mind, the reason that the Israelites couldn't fulfill the one job that they were given to do is because they didn't have the Holy Spirit in them. This final piece to the puzzle uh, in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 to 28, it says this, I will give you a new heart 
and put a new spirit in you. God knows that they needed that in order to actually keep his laws. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you and see to it that you follow my laws and keep all the commands that I have given you. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors and you will be my people and I will be your God. There are so many layers to this. My, my favorite part about this verse is the fact that um, the term, uh, one of the names for God is Jehovah Jireh, right? Uh, and often people translate that to be that God is my provider. And this isn't just in the sense that he, he gives me good things, right? He doesn't just provide for me on a surface level. What Jehovah Jireh actually translates to mean is my God that will see to it. And if you look back at this passage, it says here, I will put my spirit in you and see to it that you will follow my laws. God is actually taking the responsibility that we had into his own hands. He is giving the people an unfair advantage. An unfair advantage is when someone has the upper hand. Right? They get something that they don't deserve. God, the Alpha and the Omega, it's essentially like he's looking at the game plan of salvation, right? From beginning to end, he's going, mm, yeah, okay, I, I, I've given you a mission. You've tried there. You haven't done it. I've forgiven you. You've tried again. You haven't done it. I've forgiven you. I've tried again. Haven't done it. I've forgiven you again. I'm getting a little bit bored of the repetition here. And so he's going, okay, if I have to give you the land that I promised to your ancestors, he's going, I don't break my promises, right? And so he's going, mm, I'm going to need to sub in a player into this game plan. Uh, and the player that he subs in is actually his own Holy Spirit, because that's why we needed uh, his Holy Spirit in order to actually reach the goal and win in the end. That's the only way that we could secure the win. I've said it a few times, and I will say it again. We may not have him physically present with us, but it is definitely better for us that we are filled with his presence. This game plan, if you will, uh, was introduced in Ezekiel 36, and it prefaces the chapter uh, in Ezekiel 37, where he starts to prophesy into the Valley of Dry Bones. You might be familiar with that chapter. <laughs> that again has blown my mind. What I love about this scripture is that it's much deeper than what most people interpret it as in terms of um, a Valley of Dry Bones representing your lost, uh, you know, lost hopes or lost dreams that you've given up on, and it's that sort of Valley of Dry Bones. Um, but actually, the whoop, the picture is the process that God is actually taking the Israelites on. It is a metaphor, this valley of dry bones, a metaphor of what happens spiritually when God's people are filled with his Holy Spirit, right? The change that inevitably unfolds is the fact that these, this valley of dry bones comes to life again. The interesting thing here is that when I think of an outpouring, I naively assumed that it's, it's something to do with you know, liquid, I, I think an outpouring and I go, oh, okay, it's, it's probably going to be like the anointing oil in, in the Old Testament or uh, the living water that Jesus is referred to um, along the way. And so I, I naively think, oh yeah, an outpouring, so then something will pour into the valley. But actually the outpouring in this scripture happens a little bit differently. Um, Ezekiel is instructed instead to prophesy in two parts. 
Um, and in order for God to intervene and pour out his spirit over the valley. The first part shows us that prophesying to the bones brought restoration. Prophesying to the bones brought restoration. I'll give you a second to write that down if you're taking notes. In Ezekiel chapter 37, verses 1 to 3, it gives it a bit of context. It says, The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, I love this question, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, only You alone know. Note here how Ezekiel actually knows better than to place his human limitations on God, right? He he knows God too well to know that that's not what he's being asked. Any normal person would look at a valley of dry bones, of very dry bones, and just go, oh, there's no way. There's absolutely no way that these are coming back to life. These aren't just like KFC Wicked Wings bones, right? These aren't just freshly eaten, like just, you know, a valley full of those bones. It says that they were very dry. And so in that sense, actually, we're talking more like Abraham Lincoln kind of dry bones, you know, like hundreds of years ago. And so in that sense, this is what he's dealing with. Very dry bones. In verse four to six here, uh, he then said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath into you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. It carries on to then say, so I prophesied as I was commanded. I like that Ezekiel doesn't even question the fact that this is so bizarre to him. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. Just picture this for a second. And the bones came together, bone to bone, I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Let's just put it in park for a quick second. Uh, An important point that God's actually making here is that in order to fill a valley with so many dry bones, right? uh, The assumption that is being made here is that all of those bones and all of the people that those bones belong to actually weren't given an adequate burial, right? And so in Israelite times, that is the biggest disgrace that you could ever, um, you know, give to a man is that they wouldn't be buried respectfully. If it were a valley full of dry bones, what it's essentially saying is all of the people who whose bones are in that valley were a disgrace to me. And keep in mind that this valley is actually a picture of Israel, right? This is God speaking and prophesying over his people. And those bones belonged to his people because they were so far in this vicious cycle that they had just gone completely off track and far away from him. And so God's going, it hurts my heart, but those are my people. Now I know that this is just a prophetic vision, but just picture for a quick second what Ezekiel was actually watching take place. Scattered bones rattling all the way across the valley. 
to assemble with their matching skeleton parts, right? If they were bones that were laid all across, there would have definitely been vultures that then picked them up, ate them, and then, you know, dropped them elsewhere. And so the bones would be scattered all across. They're not just lying in perfect skeletons, right? And so they assemble to their matching skeleton parts, and then out of nowhere, tendons and flesh and skin begin to form around them. Then at the end here of the passage, he says, but there was no breath in them. Essentially, right? (laughs) Practical mind here. The valley of dry bones (laughs) turned into a valley of dead bodies, right? It doesn't sound so like, oh, as like, oh, it's kind of like spooky, right? A a valley of dry bones. It's like, cool, you get to look at that. Kind of reminds you of the Lion King a little bit. It's like, you know, whatever, wherever the sun touches, don't go beyond that. And so it's it's that sort of like a, a valley of dry bones that I picture when I think of this passage. But actually what happens in this is that it's all reassembling, it's rattling, it's coming together, it's being covered in flesh and, you know, and muscle and tendon and skin and then it just doesn't have breath. So they are then now just all dead bodies in this valley. You're welcome for that imagery, by the way. Um, (laughs) Like I mentioned earlier, the first part of Ezekiel's instruction here um, to outpour the Spirit of the Lord was to prophesy to these bones, and he saw restoration come, right? But not full restoration. The second part is that he was told to prophesy to the breath, right? And prophesying to the breath brought activation. I'll give you a second to write those down. Prophesying to the breath brought activation. In verses 9 and 10, the final part here, it says, he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain so that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them and they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. This is a very, very special prophetic passage. This is God restoring his people and getting them ready for battle. What was just recently a valley of dead bodies uh, had now become a vast army. The bones that were then restored have now been activated and they are able to engage in warfare, a vast army engaging in warfare. This has now become a picture of Israel, God's people, and how he plans to restore them. Peel back a layer with me here um, and just notice that God actually makes a distinction between the breath and the wind. This is something that I researched and absolutely blew my mind. It says here, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain. We wouldn't be able to tell what the difference is in the physical, but in the spiritual realm, they have different significant meanings. They are referencing spiritual agents Um, of war, and they are released or outpoured from the storehouses of heaven by God when it comes time to battle. 
right? Uh, He says that the breath is actually brought in on the coattails of the wind. The four winds normally, uh, in a natural sense, come from all corners of the earth. They come from the north, the west, the east, the south. Um, But in terms of the spiritual wind that he's prophesying over, they all have different significant meanings. The wind from the north brings rain. It brings growth and it prophesies increase. This is actually, this wind is referenced in the poetic books of the Bible and in the wisdom books of the Bible. The wind from the south, this is what brings peace, it brings quiet, it brings healing and comfort. This is the wind that can calm stormy seas. Different part. The wind from the east, this is a wind that scorches. It devastates and it separates. This is the wind that God sent uh, to part the Red Sea and dry the land or scorch the land and separate the seas for his people. The wind from the west, the final one here, drives away the devourer and brings relief and transformation. This is the harsh wind that God uses to drive out the locust swarms from Egypt, right? So it drives out the devourers uh, and brings restoration to his people. Combined together, you can only imagine what this picture would have looked like that God was revealing to Ezekiel. The breath flying into the valley on the coattail of these four prophetic winds. God makes one thing very clear. And if I want you to take anything away from uh, from today, it's this. That when God imparts his spirit into us, it is not a passive breath that he breathes. This is what happens. It rattles bones and shakes the earth. Come on, someone. It recognizes the voice of God. It causes new life to spring forth. It changes shape. You've seen that in the picture. It makes a lot of noise. It restores hope where death once was. And it activates the power of the Holy Spirit living in us. Keys, you can come and join me now. Ezekiel prophesied to bring both restoration and activation by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is our unfair advantage. We no longer have to do it on our own. We are the ones that actually receive his promise. We are the ones that benefit from the unfair advantage in this passage because actually it's no longer like it was in the Old Testament where the Israelites went around in this vicious circle and couldn't ever please God. We are the ones that get the unfair advantage of his Holy Spirit doing it with us. It's a transformative process of restoration. As I come to a close, I'd love to read you one of my absolute favorite quotes of all time. This is a C.S. Lewis quote from the book, Mere Christianity, and it sums this up beautifully. You have to picture what I'm about to read, so I actually want you all to close your eyes. Imagine yourself as a living house. A living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. What does that look like for you? At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He is getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. Those were all jobs that needed doing 
and you were not surprised by them. But presently, oh, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abdominally and does not seem to make any sense to you. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you originally thought of. Throwing out a new wing in the east, putting on an extra floor above you, running up towers to reach them, making beautiful courtyards all around. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is instead building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself.